pray with me? Father, I confess my need uh, for you to speak a word through me today, Lord, in and of myself I have no power, no wisdom, no eloquence, but I pray, Father, that you would bring a word for us in this assembly today that would be, as 1 Corinthians said, a word from the Spirit and a demonstration of power. God, I just ask that every heart in this place that is hungry for you would have ears to hear and eyes to see all that you have to give to us today, Father. We pray for your Spirit's anointing on our assembly now, that you would bring the word to life for us in all of the ways that you intend today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When the rector's on vacation, the bulletin doesn't get double-checked. So uh, the Romans reading was not 12 through 25, as the title said. It was last week's reading, just like the colic was. So I'm giving you permission. If you have a Bible, of course, you can open up to Romans chapter 8. If you have a phone or an iPad or something like that, power up. Uh, You just keep the silence on, if you would, and find an online Bible. You can go to BibleGateway.com, or maybe you have a Bible app on your phone. You can open up to Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 8, because we are going to be camping out a little bit in verses 12 through 17. So you haven't heard that read yet, but that's okay because I'm going to be reading kind of through it as I preach on it. If you don't have access to a Bible or a phone right now, have no fear. Just keep your ears tuned in. Um, One thing that I read in seminary as I was reading a lot of books on preaching, one one idea that always stuck with me, most of them then really didn't, as you who listen to me preach every week know. But one idea that stuck with me was a preach, uh, uh, an author who talked about something that he called the preacher's burden. And, and he said, a preacher should not go into the pulpit without a burden. He should have a burden that is li- laying heavy on his heart that he has to deal with from the Word of God. So I have to tell you, I had this sermon prepared that I prepared last Sunday afternoon, knowing that I was going to be on vacation on Romans chapter 8 on this passage. And when I woke up early this morning and got into the place of prayer, and I just began to pray over this passage in Romans chapter 8, I just, I felt the fire of God on me. I felt like God was saying, the sermon that you have written in your notes is nice, but it's not the word for your people today. And the burden that I'm feeling right now, and I just want to share with you, so I'm just going to share from the heart today. Can I, can I do that? Can I just share from the heart? I might get in trouble a little bit. There's probably things I'm going to say today that are going to make some people upset. I'm just going to tell you that, but I love you. I speak these words as truth, speaking the truth in love. And I have a burden from the Lord to speak out of this passage because it's just, it's just cutting to my heart. My heart is, here's where my heart is. Something in this country is not right. Something, something just is off. Something, the direction that, that things are heading in is, is not good. No bueno. For instance, I was talking with some friends last night. We were out at the beach. Lydia and I were talking to some friends. The state of California, I look at what is going on in California, and I think it's exemplary for, for what's going on in a lot of countries, and it exemplifies the spirit of the age in this country. So um, the, the governor, first ch- churches were banned from singing. They were banned from worshiping God, so they had to come and keep their mouths shut quietly um, and not sing out the song so that they don't spread coronavirus. Now he has banned even small meetings in houses telling people they can, in the privacy of their homes, gather and have a small Bible study or fellowship and sing and study God's Word and worship together. That is insane. And at the same time, 
And he's not the only governor who's doing this. At the same time, he refuses to apply any of these kind of restrictions to rioters and looters and people toppling down statues and bringing violence and chaos into our land. Something's not right, friends. Something behind that. There's, the Bible tells us that we're, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. My beef is not with Gavin Newsom or any other governor who, who is acting in a similar manner to, to, to keep the church repressed. Our beef is with the principalities and powers and the, present, the, 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 the evil rulers of the heavenly realms that are behind all this. Okay, that's what the Bible tells us. And so I have this burden, and, and the Bible tells us to expose those things and to bring them into the light so that we are aware as Christians of what is going on. We need to put our spiritual goggles on if we don't have them on. And my fear and what I see in the church throughout America is a lot of people don't have their spiritual goggles on. A lot of Christians have just done nothing but only evaluated the entire situation from what they hear on the news. Okay? Now, I'm going to try to not get too political today about news and media and things like that, but um, my, my fear is that the church is not actually walking in the place of favor with God and walking in the way that God intended the, the church to walk. And so I want to share about today what it means in this passage, a couple of things. One, to be led by the Spirit. It says that those who are led by the Spirit, those are the children of God. And so how are we led by the Spirit in an age of this? I have seen mostly, and even from many leaders in the church across the country, very unspiritual responses to this whole thing. Now, I'm not saying leaders shouldn't, you know, offer some safety guidelines to their churches and ask them to follow it and things like that. But I've seen so few leaders saying, what's going on spiritually? Let's hit our knees and hit our faces before God and ask, what is going on in this country? What 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 is this pandemic? What are you trying to say to us, God? Are you calling us to repentance? Are you calling us to wake up from slumber? I see so little of that. And I see, you know, love your neighbor, wear your mask, and that's about it. And I think it's superficial. I think that's a no-brainer to love your neighbor, right? But we're not going very deep as a church and asking what in the world is going on in this world. And the church is being told to not meet, remain silent, don't sing, don't worship God. And for a large part, and I don't mean to offend any individuals, but for a large part, the church has cowered in fear back into a corner and kept our mouths shut and just gone along with it. Now, I believe the Bible says that we are to obey the authorities and the government authorities, and I think that we need to be very cautious about guarding against a spirit of defiance, right? Because the question is, where is your heart through all of this, no matter where you stand on things? And I felt the Lord speaking very clearly to me, beware of having a spirit of defiance. But at the same time, there are things that God calls us to do, and we have to decide whether or not we're going to obey man or obey God, whether we are going to cower in fear or stand up and be the church of Jesus Christ that the world desperately, desperately needs right now, desperately needs the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And my question is, how long are we to keep silent? How long is this going to go on for? They're saying 12 to 18 months for a vaccine, which may or may not be all that effective, and it's kind of, you know, throwing some of the safety guidelines out the door as they develop this. I just don't put my faith there. And it's not a sustainable trajectory for the church. If the church, the church cannot be sustained, not just Good Shepherd, but many churches are just going to fall by the wayside financially. They're going to deteriorate. As we said last week, that Barna study came out and said one-third of Christians have stopped attending church, both online and in person. Many people have just sort of surrendered and just given in, and they just are, I don't know what they're doing, reading the New York Times and drinking their coffee and their PJs on Sunday morning. And God calls His people, do not forsake the assembling of the saints. 
to encourage one another as you see the day drawing near, right? The day of the Lord drawing near. And say, so it's important to gather. That's not a political statement on staying home and watching from online. That's just, uh, just to say we need to, to, consider, to consider these things. And, and so the burden, if I could state it, um, is that the church of Jesus Christ is being kept quiet and being forbidden from worshiping God and spreading the kingdom, but violent and lawless crowds are given a pass to carry out their agendas of chaos and anarchy. Friends, there's something going on, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it's an election year. Okay? So maybe I am going to get a little bit political today. But I think there's something going on. Beloved, do you know who is behind all this? Behind the chaos? Who, who, would, be, who would just thrive if the church's voice was just silent? If the church was not out spreading the kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit, walking not in fear, but in the power of God, who would be thriving if there were crowds rioting, toppling down historical statues of the founding fathers of this country? Who would thrive if there was chaos in the land, fires, shootings, anarchy? You see who's behind it all, don't you? You see? It's so clear to me. Okay, let's get into Romans chapter 8 because I think some of the things that Paul has to say here are, are particularly instructive for the people of God. Let's just jump right into verses, uh, verse 12. He says this, so if you're reading from your phone or if you don't have that, just, just listen and I'm going to read it. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh. To live according to it. Okay? The flesh, the sinful nature, that, that part of us that, that we received Jesus into us to cleanse it and to give us victory over it. And Paul says we don't have an obligation to live according to the sinful nature. You hear a lot of teaching in the church about grace, grace, grace. You know, we're all sinners. We're just going to sin and God's just going to forgive it. That's his job. That is not what the scriptures teach. It says that we don't have an obligation to obey the temptations of the sinful nature. We're not bound to it anymore. We walk in freedom, amen? Jesus broke those shackles of sin and death over us, so we no longer are obliged to walk according to our old nature, our old man. The Bible says in Christ we are a new creation. We walk in the power of the Holy Spirit over those things that, that destroy us. And as Paul says here uh, in, in verse 13, that they, those things lead to death, right? If we follow the, the, the nature this is one of the things that, that I wonder about, right? A, ch- a fleshly church, or what we might call a carnal church in the Western world, uh, particularly. A church that is just looks no different than the world. A church that watches all of the same shows and, and filthy, perverse movies and reads all the same perverse books and, and speaks with the same kind of filthy language that the world does so that it's no longer a witness of holiness to the world. Does the, does the world, when they look at the church of Jesus Christ today, see something different? Do they see the shining brightness and the purity of Jesus? Or do they just say, oh, they're just like us, but they go to this building on Sunday morning and they worship Jesus? You know, that's a serious question that we, that, that we need to ask. This passage has comes up a lot lately in um, Christian circles because of what's going on in the world. But I want to read this to you, and I think it's something that it's worth considering because the question for me is, you know, I don't know what, what God's hand is in the coronavirus. 
But I do know that according to scriptures, when uh, sin is continually indulged in unrepentantly and a people or a nation continues to press deeper and deeper into things that grieve the heart of God, God removes his hand of blessing and safety. And when that happens in the spiritual realm, the enemy is given freedom. It's like doorways get open for the enemy to come in and wreak havoc. I think that's what's happening in this land. Look at where we have gone in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I read a statistic the other day. New York City, which interestingly enough was hit hardest by the coronavirus, every, uh, every, one-third of every pregnancy in New York City is aborted. One-third of every pregnancy in New York City is aborted. Just think about that for a second. The killing of the unborn and the blood of those innocent babes crying out from the ground like the blood of Abel. Now, this is, what, this is what 2 Chronicles chapter 7 says. It's, the Lord is speaking to Solomon. They've just finished the glorious temple, the house of worship. And the Lord says to Solomon, he makes this sort of promise to him about something he needs to remember. And he says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, here's what he says, If my people, say that, my people. Okay, he's talking about God's people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Is this nation's land not in need of healing? And God says it's, it's up to his people to repent on behalf of what's going on in the world around them and cry out for him. And he says, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive sin and I will heal the land. So so I want to take this seriously and say, should we be really thinking about this as a church? What does it look like to be a part of, of God's people who are serious about crying out to God and say, Lord, Forgive us for, the, for, the, for the, the immorality in this country. Forgive us for, for the, the wickedness that grieves your heart and have mercy on this land and, and, and take this virus away and bring us in this chaos and this anarchy and bring us back to a place of flourishing. Difficult words to hear, but sometimes we forget that God does, as an act of love, bring judgment because He wants to purify people of walking in a state of rebellion against Him so that they can be once again in in fellowship with Him. It's always an act of love. God never does anything out of hatred or malice. He's a benevolent God. Everything He does out of love. But sometimes He does allow judgment to come so that he can get people's attention that they'll see his whole point was that they would turn from their wicked ways. They would turn from death to life and walk in life and flourish and thrive. Now, verse 14 in uh, Romans chapter 8, let's go back there. Verse 14 says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So in the, in the Greek, it literally says something like, those being led in the continuous sense, those being led by the Spirit of God, those are the children of God. Okay? So it's, it, he, he's making a, a, a point to say the characteristics of the true children of God is that they're the people who live led by the Holy Spirit of God. They're people who live by the Spirit. They listen to what the Father is saying. They listen to what Jesus is saying and speaking. And they live, in, they live that out, right? Which, of course, implies 
a, a, a transformed life of purity and holiness and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the true evidence of a, of a person who belongs to Christ. And then just a few verses earlier, as you heard read out from last week's passage, he said, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ do not belong to Him. Okay? Whew! Okay? You can't have Christ without having the Spirit. And if you don't, there's no evidence of the Spirit working in your life to bring about transformation, to bring about purity, to help you walk in the power and love of God. The question is, do you have the Spirit? Okay? Just something that, that, that some, some people may need to wrestle with. And go to God who is generous and gracious and eager, eager to pour out His Spirit upon us. Now this next verse really, I think, is maybe the most relevant for what's going on in the world today. But in verse 15, uh, Paul says this, The Spirit, the Holy Spirit that you received, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. The Holy Spirit that you received does not make you slaves of fear. Beloved, Jesus died to set us free from the fear of death. Let me read something to you. This is Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, since the children, it's talking about God's children, have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, now listen, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Jesus shed his blood and died so that we could be delivered from the fear of death. And yet the spirit of fear and the fear of death is dominating this country and it is dominating the church. Now, I'm not saying go try if you, you know, if you have health problems, just go let someone cough on you and have faith that, you know, or don't be afraid of death. Don't go commit suicide. I'm not saying to be stupid, but the reality is is fear, 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 fear. You turn on the news, fear. It's always the, 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 the cases of death. It's never the 98% people who recover. It's always death and fear. And, and the Bible tells us that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. To walk in freedom from that. Now, there are, to, to, to kind of hit on a political note, there are people who have sicknesses and illnesses and they need to be very careful about not catching the virus. It's just, you know, God doesn't say just try to go get sick and die. That's, that's, that's stupidity. But much of the church is not out there spreading the kingdom because they're dominated by a spirit of fear. That's wrong. That's wrong. Okay. There, there are ways to do it without being stupid. But I think some Christians... And let's ask ourselves honestly, have I used the whole thing as an excuse to say, well, I can't really do much kingdom work right now because the, until the coronavirus thing passes. Friends, this isn't going away tomorrow. How long will we as the church remain hushed, hiding out in our houses, just hoping it will go away, hoping there will be a vaccine? Friends, Jesus Christ is not 
sheltering in place. The Holy Spirit is not sheltering in place. He is spreading the gospel out in the world. I've been talking to friends who are going out on evangelism uh, trips to the mall and door to door. We're doing that in our neighborhood this afternoon and talking to people and people are getting saved and people are getting set free of, of bondage to unforgiveness. People are getting healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are people out there doing it. But so much of the church has just gone along with what we're being told or urged or encouraged to do to withdraw basically from society and not have contact with other people. The gospel spreads by being out there and sharing it with people. So yes, you can respect people's distance and talk to them from 6 feet or 12 feet or whatever the, the rule is in any given place. But don't just withdraw and give up and wave the white flag of surrender. That's what the enemy wants for the church. And I think we're in this place, like I said last week, of a, of a shaking. We're going to see in the, in the months and the years to come that the church, the real church, we're going to see who, who and what it is. Because there's going to be no more place for sort of half-heartedness. Half-hearted commitments to Jesus. In the early centuries, I was revisiting this, remember reading about it in seminary, but in the early centuries of the church, um, plagues would break out in the ancient world. And most of society who were not sick would flee and they would go in, in, into the mountains or the hills or whatever and they would try to get out of the, where the locus of the community life was so that they didn't get sick. Guess who stuck around to minister the gospel and to take care of the sick. The Christians. The Christians. Why? It's the same people who would walk into the lion's den and say, I'm not renouncing Jesus. I don't care if you feed me to the lions. Jesus told his disciples, just think about this for a minute. He says, those who believe in me, they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Not they will, have, they will lay their hands on the sick and spread coronavirus to them. And again, I'm not advocating for stupidity and if you know you have the virus, you know, don't wear a mask and go start laying hands on people. I'm not saying that. But there's a, a place where we have to step out from the fear and walk in courage and faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit trusting in what, that what God's Word says is true, that the promises declared over us, Psalm 91, about no pestilence or plague touching our home, actually believing those and declaring them over ourselves and walking in them and going out and trusting that there is actually literally a divine shield around us as we go out to spread the Gospel. There's, there's this great story in, in Acts chapter 4. That, it, that is just a picture, I think, of, of what's going on in, in, in much of the country today. And Peter and John, they go, uh, they, they've just recently been filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and now Peter, he's not, he's not the old Peter, he's a new man. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and they go into uh, the temple to pray, and they see this um, lame man who's begging for alms, and Peter says, he says he looked at him, and he said, silver and gold, I don't have any of that, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. 
And the man got up and it said he was leaping and praising God in the temple. And the temple authorities, the religious people who didn't like that, they came after Peter and John and they said, what, what do you think you're doing? What is this? Tell, tell us what's going on. And they said, if you want to know what the power is, if you're asking what the power is that healed this, this man, don't look at us. It's the power of Jesus Christ who God raised from the dead. And then the authorities, the Sanhedrin, they take them and they tell them, they forbid them to speak in the name of Jesus. Let me just read you a couple snippets from, from the story. This is the Sanhedrin talking, the leaders, the religious leaders, uh, talking amongst themselves. They said, what are we going to do with these men? They asked, everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, that is the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. That just almost gives me the chills. Don't speak any longer to anyone in this name. Do not sing and worship in this name. Do not gather in this name. Now here's what they did. Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. That's what they said to the governing authorities. And they, 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 you know, they, they threatened them. They let them go. Peter and John go back to the, their house church or whatever to the other disciples and they tell them what happened. And this is how the church responds. It says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They didn't say, oh, uh-oh. They said, we can't speak in that name. We better be quiet. We better not do it. They said, they raised their voices in prayer to God and they prayed this beautiful prayer. At the end, they say this, now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You know, I know how God responds to that kind of prayer. You think God goes, no, you better obey the Sanhedrin. Don't speak in the name of Jesus. Listen to how God responds to that prayer. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I think it was shaken by the joyful laughter of the Lord. It was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. That's how God responds to a people who are under threat, who are told not to speak in the name of Jesus. They cried out and said, God, You have to give us the boldness. You have to fill us with Your Holy Spirit to do the work that You've called us to do. And he did. And they went out and they counted it a joy and a blessing to suffer for the name of Christ. Hallelujah. The first Peter says that if you suffer or are persecuted for the name of Christ, the spirit of glory rests on you. No fear of death. No fear of death. Romans 8, verse 15. Paul says this, the spirit Moving on, the second part. Rather, the Spirit, you didn't receive a Spirit that makes you a slave to fear. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. You know, we're not convicted of this enough. That, that, that we belong to God as sons and daughters. That His Spirit lives in us. That we are now His temple. That we're His dwelling place. And Paul says... You've been adopted to sonship. Now, that, that, the term in Greek, it's a, it's a Greek word that Paul uses for adoption. 
and it's a, it's a legal technical term. And then it implies the full inheritance of the, of the rights of a firstborn biological son. And Paul is using it very specifically to say, in Christ, you have Christ's inheritance. You have everything. You've been given everything. God has declared you righteous and made you a son and daughter. You are loved by him. And now you don't have to walk in fear. You walk in such a place of intimacy with God that you cry out as a son or daughter, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. A young man named Howell Harris uh, was used by God greatly in Wales in, in the year 1735 to bring revival. And he, he met God before that in such a real and powerful way. And he describes his experience. It's really beautiful. I want to I read this to you. He said, I felt suddenly my heart melting within me like wax before the fire with love to God my Savior. And felt not only love and peace, but longing to be dissolved and to be with Christ. And then was a cry in my inmost soul, which I was totally unacquainted with before. Abba, Father, Abba, Father. I could not help calling God my Father. I knew that I was His child and that He loved me and heard me. My soul being filled and satiated, crying, "'Tis enough, I am satisfied. Give me strength, and I will follow Thee through water and fire." I could say I was happy indeed. There was in me a well of water springing up to everlasting life. Do you have that joy? Do you have that felt sense of being a son or daughter of God, being so filled with His Holy Spirit that your heart melts in the fire like wax in the fire before Him, where you have to say, I'm satisfied. (laughs) Or Charles Finney said, Lord, you have to remove your hand from me or I'm going to die. Because the, the, the presence of His love was so powerful and was filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the, what the spirit of adoption is. We don't walk in slavery to fear. We walk in the knowledge of God's love and God's power and God's protection over us. We're His kids. And He doesn't just love us. He likes us. And He wants us to carry on with the mission that He has given His church to go and make disciples, to lay our hands on the sick and see them recover, to cast out demons, to prophesy in His name. It brings me to winding down here. I want to talk just for a minute about uh, stewarding God's power, but first I need to take a sip of water because I'm uh, parched. Lord for water. I want to talk about stewarding God's power. You know me, I can't preach a sermon without talking about the importance of the power of the Holy Spirit. The real power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we are led by the Spirit when we steward the Spirit's power. And and so much of the American church today is not walking in the power of God. We've essentially said, No thanks to all that extreme power stuff. I'm content with Sunday school classes and tithing or whatever. I was listening to a a, a lecture by a theologian uh, the other day named Sam Storms. And um, Sam Storms was, he's got a great story. He was very skeptical about the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he was at a conference back in the 80s 
where uh, John Wimber was speaking on the power of the Spirit and how the Holy Spirit fell on Sam Storms and he began to slide out of his seat laughing. He couldn't stop laughing. He had got hit with what we call holy laughter, the joy of the Lord. And they picked him up and tried to carry him out of the place, but he just kept laughing. Did I tell this story a few weeks ago? And they got to the restaurant. He finally got him under control. And in the middle of the restaurant, he just burst out laughing. He couldn't control himself. So anyway, Sam Storms was chained by the power of God. But he's a theologian. He's a thinker. He's a Bible scholar. He, he was saying in his talk, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but he said something like this, and it really struck me. He said, I can't help but wonder if the reason the church doesn't experience the power of God today is because we have effectively created lifestyles that don't require it. We've, we've, we've effectively created a, a church lifestyle in many places that doesn't really require the power of God. A.W. Tozer asked that stinging question, if the Holy Spirit's presence were to leave uh, the church in America today, uh, 95% of churches probably wouldn't notice the difference. What a, what a challenging thing to think about. But you see, this, this gift of power, Jesus told his disciples, he says, you will be clothed with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He wasn't just talking about like power to not sin or something like that, like to be included in there. He was talking about the power that he walked in, the power that when he, people touched him, they were healed. When he laid his hands on the sick, they all recovered. He just spoke a word and demons had to flee and leave people. He's talking about that kind of power. And he says, you, disciples, you believers, Jesus said, the one who believes in me will do the same works that I do. Yea, he will even do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father and someone's got to keep doing this stuff. That's us. And Jesus gives that to us as a gift. Friends, Jesus died for that. Jesus died for us to walk in the power of God, to steward the power of God. He died to forgive our sins, to make us a, a, a temple that the Holy Spirit could dwell in and work in, in power. And I'm, I, I'm so concerned that the, that the church is, is taking another step backwards from the power of God because of what's going on in the country. And we need to stand up, not, not so that our voice can be heard, but so that, that, that the voice of Jesus Christ can be heard, that the gospel of the kingdom can be faithfully proclaimed. So I, I would just encourage everyone to, to pray about that and to discern what does that look like in my life, to be faithful, to, to, to walking in the power of God and sharing the gospel in a, in a time like this where it's difficult and I do have to consider some things about what's going on in the world. But God will bless those who take risks. There's a 19th century German theologian who was well known for his gifts of healing. His name was Johann Christoph Blumhardt. And um, he was used by God in a very powerful way in the 19th century in his little village in Moltlingen, Germany to bring about real revival. And I want to read something from him that just was so touching to me when I read it. He said, I long for another outpouring of the Holy Spirit, another Pentecost. That must come if things are to change for Christianity, for it simply cannot continue in such a wretched state. The gifts and powers of the early Christian time, oh, how I long for their return. And I believe the Savior is just waiting for us to ask for them. When I look at what we have, I cannot help but sighing. Oh, Lord Jesus, is that the promised Spirit for which you hung on a tree? Where is the Spirit that penetrates nation after nation as swiftly as at the time of the apostles and places them at Jesus' feet? Do you, 
you share that longing? Do you share that hunger? Friends, the church, we, we're seeing it right now. As he said, the church can't continue in such a wretched state. It can't. It's not even sustainable in the, in the physical realm, let alone the spiritual realm. Here's what the passage closes out with. He says this, If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Everybody say that. Co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, that's a big if, if indeed we share in His suffering in order that we may also share in His glory. Life is going to involve suffering. And the Bible says that all who preach the message of Jesus will be persecuted. You look at the church in the West today, where's the persecution? There really isn't any. There really isn't any. There, there hasn't been a need for it. That's kind of scary, right? In the early church, they were persecuted, persecuted, persecuted. But I believe, I'm not going to end on a, a message of doom and gloom. I'm, I believe, I have hope. Because the gospel is all about hope. And God is getting a hold, a hold of his t- the attention of his church right now. I really believe he is. And I believe that all of us in this place, along with church throughout the world, has an opportunity to rise up and to steward the power of God. And to say, you know what? I'm not going to walk in fear. I'm not going to be hushed by fear. I'm not going to cower in a corner for the next year or two years or three years and not share the message of the gospel and serve my neighbor and love my neighbor because I'm afraid. We all have that opportunity. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, if only for this life, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this life is all we hope for, if this life is is where we have all of our investments, all of our spiritual investments. Paul says, oh, pity on you. That's sad. But see, he's preaching the message that it doesn't have to be that way. Because, and it's not that way. Because Jesus Christ is indeed risen from the dead. And we actually already have one foot in the new eternal realm because Christ in us. We have heaven in us. God has put the power of heaven, the power of his own spirit inside of us so that we can walk through the earthly realm as windows to heaven. So that when people look at us and our manner of life, our manner of gathering, our manner of worship, our manner of prayer, our manner of sharing the gospel, they experience the power of heaven. See, Paul said that the kingdom of heaven is not just words, but power. The kingdom of heaven is power and people need someone who will invite them into that encounter where they actually experience the power of God. We're sons and we're daughters who have an eternal inheritance. It's already been secured. The greatest retirement plan you could ever have. It's already been secured in the eternal realm. So don't be shackled to this life. Don't be shackled to fear. Don't don't be shackled to intimidation tactics. I believe that that this country, it's an election season. 
things are going to heat up even more. And whether one or the other gets elected, it's going to get a little crazy in this country, I think, because the stakes are high, the tension is high, the, 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 the stove has been left on and the gas is in the air, and the election is going to be like a match that gets lit. But see, we're people of the kingdom. That's our politics. That's our policies. And our president, our ultimate president, our ultimate king is Jesus. And we need to follow him in and through what is to come. And I just think that that this, and I've been saying this, you've heard me say this for for the last few months, this is just the beginning of, of 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 a plan from the evil one to kind of step by step repress the church's voice and the church's power. He doesn't want to see the gospel spread in the end times, in the, in the days before Jesus returns, but the scriptures are clear that it will. Because it says that as darkness increases and covers the face of the land, over you, God's people, the light will arise and shine and nations will come fleeing to you. Because you have the answer. You have the way, the truth, and the life. You have the power of the kingdom and the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that would draw many out of the darkness. So let's arise. Let's arise and be that light in the world. Let's live spirit-led lives, free of fear and assured that the God who created us and saved us from our sin will also protect us and use us in ways to bring glory to His name. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Let's pray. God, we need You. God, I, I, I don't want anyone to, to, to go from this place today trying to strive harder in their own strength to do the work of the kingdom myself included so father what what we need is for heaven to move down to us and to empower us lord just like you did on pentecost when you joyfully poured out your spirit on those on those disciples that that wretched bunch lord you must have looked at them and shook your head and said they can't continue in this wretched state and you poured out your spirit on them lord and they were drunk with joy and boldness and power to preach you jesus savior lord would you kindle a new fire in in this place in this particular community of saints here in maitland florida lord would you would you kindle a new fire in us a fire that can't be contained, a fire that can't be quenched by fear or control or intimidation, but a fire that so burns with passion for your name, God, that we cannot help but speak boldly the name of Jesus. It's in his holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Let's boldly declare our